69, we finished the 78th Psalm. It was quite lengthy. In fact, I think we spent three lessons on it. And this 79th Psalm is a prayer for times of national disaster. Israel had many times of national disaster. And in verses uh, 1 through 4, we find the case is stated. In verses 5 through 9, the plea is made. And verses 10 through the rest of the psalm is why prayer, why the prayer should be answered. So first of all, let's notice the, this uh, prayer and how they state their case and their need before God and uh, get his attention concerning the fact that they need help. So in <clears throat> Psalm 79, verse 1, it says, O God, the heathen are coming to thine inheritance. Thy holy temple have they defiled. They have laid Jerusalem on heaps. So evidently, they were invaded by the heathen. The heathen nations round about the nation had caused them many problems and troubles. And they're stating their case before God. Invaded by the heathen, the temple defiled. You know, Jesus speaks of a future time when the temple will be defiled in Matthew chapter 24. And we find that uh, it says they have laid Jerusalem on heaps. They knew that this would... Uh, be the thing that God would be concerned about is the destruction of all the holy things. It happened later on in the days of Belshazzar, if you remember. They defiled the, the holy things of God and they drank wine out of the vessels they had stolen, uh, silver and golden vessels they had stolen out of the temple. And they were desecrating all the things of God and God's handwriting on the wall, on the plaster, said that the Belshazzar, your weight in the balances and found warning. This night the kingdom is going to be taken from you and give to the Medes and the Persians. So God will suffer a lot of things to happen to dishonor his name, dishonor his people, uh, dishonor his place. But there is a limit, and God's patience finally wears out with those who do such things. And this, is, this was the complaint and the prayer. Uh, the psalmist is complaining of the desolation of Jerusalem here, and he says... In verse 2, the dead bodies of thy servants have they given to be meat unto the fowls of the heaven, the flesh of thy saints unto the beasts of the earth. We see here the, the inhumanity of the enemies of God. Sometimes there are people that are just, we say all people are human, but all people seem to, there are many people that seem to be inhuman or not human from time to time. It says, Their blood have they shed like water round about Jerusalem, and there was none to bury them. We find here the cruelty of the enemy. You know, sometimes we're so naive that we fail to realize that you, there's a negative side to things as well as a positive side to things. Uh, Dan Storm called me earlier today. I was talking to him, and his little article in the news has always been the silver lining. And he always speaks of the positive and the good side of things. And he said to me, he says, and I shouldn't be saying too much about this because it was kind of personal, but anyway, I don't think he would mind. He says, I've kind of painted myself into a corner that, that I always say the good things, but he says, you know there's a lot of things that need to be spoken out against too, isn't it? And I said, you're sure right, Dan. And we had a conversation about that because this world does need reproof. It says, uh, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but what? Rather, reprove them. So some things need to be reproved, and some things we have to be against. And when we find that uh, uh, the enemy is cruel, there are people that are cruel. In Proverbs chapter 12, let me read here what it says. In Proverbs 12, verse 10, it says, A righteous man regardeth the life of his beast, 
but the tender mercies, now look, of the wicked are cruel. Even their so-called tender mercies are cruel. God has uh, many tender mercies. In fact, David prays in Psalm 51 after his terrible sin, and he says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. And he says, According to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. But here, this proverb says that the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. The very best they can be is cruelty. You see, the the most they have to offer is cruelty. When they're trying to be good, they're bad. When they're trying to be tender, they're still cruel in the manner of what they do. And so, uh, there there is the cruelty of the wicked. Now, back in our psalm, let's look at it in verse uh, uh, 4. It says, We are become a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and derision to them that are round about us. The reproach of their neighbors spoken of. That's a terrible thing when neighbors, uh, when you become a reproach to your neighbors. I love good neighbors, friends, loved ones, and people round about us. I could say a lot about them t- tonight, but I'm afraid if I I'm afraid I would cause more uh, problems. I'd try to get everybody to do what some others have done, and they're so sweet. Everyone is so good to me, and I appreciate it. They've been real good to my wife and I. All the members of the church, every one of you, in various ways, at various times, have done wonderful things for us. And we appreciate every act of kindness and concern. We are become a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and derision to them that are round about us. That's a terrible situation, isn't it? And then after the plea was made, uh, we find, I, I mean, after the case is stated, the plea is made to God. In verse 5 he says, How long, Lord? Look, look at that. It's a question. Wilt thou be angry forever? Another question. Shall thy jealousy burn like fire? There are three questions in that one verse. First of all, we see the plea is made, and to whom was the plea made? It was to God. If we're going to cry out to anyone, who, who do we turn to? We turn to the Lord, don't we? Remember when the, there were many disciples following Jesus and they began to go away from him and, and uh, Jesus said to the, the apostles, to Peter, he says, Wilt thou also go away? And Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. To whom shall we make our plea? In spite of all the fact that they were chastened, that they were uh, in disaster and, and all of the things that they had, and usually it was because of their sins that had brought these chastened, uh, chastisements upon them, even though they knew that, they still made their plea to God. You and I may know we do wrong. We may know that there's a great need. We may know that we uh, deserve a lot of the chastening hand of God. And yet, when we make our plea, who do we go to? We go directly to Him because He's the only one who can help us. And we go to God when we make our uh, plea. And it says, How long, Lord? Look at verse 5. How long? How long will these chastenings go on? You might in your life say, How long will I have all these problems and trials and things to face? Don't ever think when there's smooth sailing that everything's going to always continue to be that way. Remember when uh, Paul was on the voyage on the sea and he was on this ship? And uh, it says, uh, When the south wind blew softly, supposing that they ob- obtained their purpose, they set out, they set sail. But not long after, a great tempest arose called Eurycliding. A great storm like a typhoon arose. And we find that in the midst of all the calmness and when we think we've accomplished our purpose and everything is going smoothly, then the storm comes. 
and there are trials that we face every day. And we better be prepared for bad weather as well as fair weather in our lives because it's, it's common to man to face these things. We love the smooth sailing, don't we? We love when the sun is shining and everything is going fine. But most all of us have some trials to face at times. And sometimes they're one after the other. Sometimes they're lessened. But I'm sure if I were to dive in, delve into each and every one of your problems tonight and start asking you, if you have some problem or some trial or some burden, I know everyone here would have something. There's not, in fact, I know of many of them, and I won't call them out, but I know of many of them. That's why we need to pray for one another, because everyone has a cross to bear, and everyone has trials to face, and uh, the only way we do it is looking to God. How long, Lord, wilt thou? And then it says, wilt thou be angry forever? A plea for God to end his anger. Now, God, uh, God's anger, sometimes we mistake. God is not really angry at us, but He does uh, get uh, provoked at our sins. And we provoke the Lord to anger by many things we do. And the nation of Israel did the same thing. God's people did the same thing. And then it says in verse uh, 5, the last question, Shall thy jealousy burn like fire? In other words, here was a plea to escape his fierce anger. Notice his anger. Shall thy anger be forever? And then it says, Shall thy jealousy burn like fire? Is it going to be this uh, fierce anger all the while? Verses 6 and 7, here's a plea for the Lord to shift his anger to the ungodly. Sometimes if God's children are chastened, they say, Well, Lord, look at these people that seem to be without chastening and out here living wickedly. I'm enduring all the trials and look out here at the rest of the world. Sometimes we wish God would just just divert his anger to those that really seem to be deserving more of the wrath and anger and judgment of God. The Bible says God is long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It says, pour, verse 6, Pour out thy wrath upon the heathen that have not known thee. Why don't you, the psalmist is saying, why don't you get on those guys that don't even know anything about you? Why don't you get on someone else for a while? You see, we like to tell the Lord how to do it, don't we? We like to think that if He'd do like we would like for Him to do, He would judge the wicked and He'd leave us alone for a while. But it says, Whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom He receiveth. It's not because God does not love us that chastening comes and trials come, but it's because He does something for us and with us and helps us through the trials and makes a better person character out of us. He builds our character. He makes us to be more what we should be by these things. If you never had anything difficult, if you never had a trial, if you never had a problem to face, you would not be near the person that you are today. But through those trials and through those testings and through those things that you've endured, God has made a better person out of you. You may not admit that, but it's true. There's a little uh, poem or saying that says, <clears throat> I walked a mile with laughter. She chattered all the way and left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow and ne'er a word said she, but all oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with Sometimes we learn through the trials and sorrows of life. And we learn a great deal. We learn to be more compassionate. We learn to be more loving. We learn to think more about other people. We learn to think more about what problems are in every life as well as our own. It tenders us. It makes us more caring. It makes us more considerate of what life is all about. It makes us to think about how we'll live this life and what we face 
during this life and especially to long uh, a little bit for eternity. It was on my heart and mind most of the time coming up to church and before I left and while I was in my study preparing this lesson. And I don't know what it has to do with the application here, but on the other hand, I was thinking of that song, Just over in the glory land we'll live eternally, saints on every hand are shouting victory. The song of sweetest praise drift down from heaven's shore, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Just over in the glory land. How many of you know that song? Quite a few. Good. I started to sing it just by, without even the books. Uh, it's in the songbook. The one I was looking at, and I handed over to Jim there, the little orange one. Sometimes those songs mean a great deal to us because they really set us straight as to what life is all about and eternity is all about. And then I want you to notice it says again in verse 7, For they have devoured... Well, let's read all of verse 6. We didn't read it all. Pour out thy wrath upon the heathen that have not known thee, and upon the kingdoms that have not called upon thy name. There are other people that don't even pray. God's people were in prayer. They were praying. They wanted God to do something. They said, How long, O God? They said, God, look at the situation. Here's the plea that we're making. And here's people that do not even call upon thy name. And he says, the psalmist says, Why don't you pour out your wrath upon them? In verse 7, For they have devoured Jacob. They've devoured Jacob. That was God's chosen. And laid waste his dwelling place. It says, O remember not against us former iniquities. Let thy tender mercies speedily prevent us, for we are brought very low. It's a prayer. For the, as they confess their sins. Remember not against us former iniquities. All men could make this prayer. Remember not against us former iniquities. What if all your former iniquities, all your former sins, everything that you had ever done against God was always remembered before God? Aren't you grateful that God says their sins and iniquities will I remember no more? If He didn't say that, we'd be in trouble, wouldn't we? So I'm grateful that God does forgive. And so it's a, a uh, plea for God's help. And then he says not only to not remember our, our iniquities, but he says in verse 8, Let thy tender mercies speedily prevent us. In other words, it's a plea for tender mercies again. For we are brought very low. This is humility that's manifested. When we're brought very low, God is able to lift us up. Let thy tender mercies speedily prevent us. For we are brought very low. And you know, God uh, tells us that uh, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. God brings us low sometimes that He may lift us up. It says that He will uh, 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 lift up those that are abased. He that exalteth himself shall be abased. He that, he that humble himself shall be exalted. And so, when we're humble, God will lift us up. When we put ourselves in the right place in the sight of God. It says in verse uh, 9, look at verse 9. This is a plea for help. It says, Help us, O God, of our salvation. You know God's people are very peculiar people. We, we uh, do wrong and we bring chastening. The national sins that, were, uh, that Israel had committed had brought these terrible things upon them and they were in trials from time to time and that's why they were pleading to God. That's why the psalmist was pleading to God, and he pleads for himself as well as for the whole people. You and I do the same thing. And, but the thing about it is, I want you to notice that it says, Help us, O God, of our salvation. When we come to turning to someone for help, we turn to God. We know He's the one that has saved us. We know that 
He's the only one that can help us. For the glory of thy name. Do it for your honor. See? The Lord's name would be honored if help would come. Have you ever thought about the fact that God is honored in doing things for you and I? Because God has promised that He will take care of His own, and so when He does take care of His own, His honor and His glory is manifested. He does not do everything just for our sake, but He does it for His own name's sake as well. Uh, Samuel prayed, and he says, God, he says, God forbid that we should sin against God. God forbid that I should sin against Thee in ceasing to pray for You. And sin against God in ceasing to pray for You. Listen in the book of Samuel, and he says, listen. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his own namesake, for it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. And so if it's pleased God to make you his people, he's not going to forsake you. Why? For his own namesake. Because his honor and glory is at stake. And that's what the psalmist is praying here. Help us, O God, of our salvation. It says, For the glory of thy name, and deliver us, and purge away our sins for thy namesake. His glory, the glory of His name, purge away our sins for Thy name's sake. Because God is a forgiving God, and because when we make confession of our sins, uh, they're going to be cleansed. But He's the one that purges away our sins. The Bible tells us that He's the one that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1 verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But notice what we're to do. We're to confess our sins. Uh, David prayed in Psalm 51 and he said, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Purge away our sins. And purge away our sins for thy name's sake. Look at verse 10. Wherefore should the heathen say, Where is their God? In other words, why is it that we are brought in such a condition that the heathen can say and, may, and question if we have God? Where is thy God? Where, wherefore... Is the, could the heathen say, where is thy God? We're in trouble. We have the problems. We have the trials. The nation of Israel had them then, and the psalmist had them. But we do. And when someone on the outside says, where's your God in all this? Well, we thought you were Christians. You know, that's the way the world talks. I'd rather have anyone to say almost, I'd rather them almost curse me or have, a, you know, a fist fight with me or whatever they want to do other than to say, so you profess or you claim to be a Christian. Just because I have sins and shortcomings, as all of us do. And when you make a mistake. So you claim to be a Christian. There's nothing irritates me more than that, because I think it's the lowest blow that someone can deal to you when you're trying to live right. And uh, to to bring Christ into it and try to to bring you down because of some mistake you've made in life. Some little fault or sin or shortcoming and maybe some imperfection in your life. And we all have plenty of them. But that's a terrible thing to say. So you profess to be a Christian. Leave that alone. If you want to irritate me a little bit, do that. Because, uh, you know, I'll readily confess I need God's help and God's grace day by day. I have no problem with that. But when I'm doing the best I can, I hate for people to put me down. And I don't want them to put you down either. And, you know, the thing about it is, I believe people need to, to learn what they ought to think about themselves and what they ought to think about others. And you've heard me teach it time and time again that a man should not, in Romans chapter 12, should not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. 
And then Paul said to Timothy and Titus both, Let no man despise thee. Let no man despise thy youth. So that means you're not to be tramped on. And it means you're not to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. But it means you're to think soberly. According to this, God has dealt to every man that measure faith. There is a middle ground to your thinking. You're not better than anyone else, but you're not worse than anyone else. And if you can come to that place that you can have the dignity and the respect that you need in life without being lifted up with pride and puffed out with pride or without being a doormat for someone to walk on, then you've reached the proper uh, place in thinking about yourself and thinking about other people. My son used to have a little record. It's a little song about this frog, you know. How many of you remember says he puffed himself out and he puffed himself out and he puffed himself out and he puffed himself out until suddenly he burst. So that's the too high, isn't it? If you do keep doing that, suddenly something's going to happen. So think right about yourself and about others. God expects us to do that. All right? His Word teaches that's the proper way of thinking. All right, back to this. <clears throat> We're in verse uh, uh, 10. Wherefore should the heathen say, Where is their God? Let him be known among the heathen in our sight by the revenging of the blood of thy servants which is shed. Now, if God, God does revenge the blood of his servants. Remember in the book of Revelation, these uh, tribulation martyrs, they said, Lord, how long will it be before you avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And God says, wait, this, the soul's under the altar. I believe it's in the sixth or seventh chapter of Revelation. The souls that were seen under the altar crying out for God to, but whatever chapter. But anyway, he said, wait for a while until thy brethren also, which will be killed, which will be martyred the same as you are. When this all happens, God says there's plenty of time for this judgment to come. You just wait, and it's in God's hands. Sometimes we wonder why God is so slow to bring judgment upon wickedness and upon a wicked world. But it's because God is long-suffering, and He doesn't see things like we do. And judgment is in God's hand and in God's time, and we don't have to hurry it up. We think, well, why doesn't He do something now about the wickedness in this world? Why doesn't He strike down some of this wickedness? He could just get rid of it right away and put an end to a lot of it. But God is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. There was a time that God's patience was tried in the days of Noah, if you'll remember in the days of Noah when, the, when the, the whole world was lying in wickedness, the wickedness was great in the earth, and finally his patience came to an end, and he saved Noah, the eighth person, eight, eight souls from the flood, and started a new world with Noah and his three sons, and his wife, Noah's wife, and, and the son's wives. And all of us have stemmed from that line, from those descendants, descended from them. And then there was a time that God's patience wore out with a Sodom and Gomorrah, remember, later on. And he sent fire and brimstone down from heaven, delivered just lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. Said this righteous man dwelling among them vexed his righteous soul with, from day to day with their unlawful deeds. And his patience came to an end with Sodom and Gomorrah. And we say, well, why doesn't his patience come to an end with the people nowadays that are living like they did then? They're scattered all over the nation, aren't they? But, God, this is a day and age of grace. And God has a time that judgment will come. And there, there have been many times God's patience. We mentioned Belshazzar, didn't we? His patience ran out with Belshazzar and the people in that day and hour. And he turned his kingdom over to the Medes and the Persians and smote Belshazzar that very night. In that night he was slain. Well, God 
was the author of all that. And God will someday uh, find this world too sinful to endure any longer and the judgment will come. And we know it's predicted in the book of Revelation at a certain point in time God's wrath and judgment will be poured out. And it doesn't mean that because of this men will repent. Because if you read Revelation you'll find that it says there that in spite of all this they did not repent of their deeds that they were doing. In spite of all the judgments. You would think that judgment would cause men to repent, wouldn't you? But the Bible says the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. Most people recognize God's grace in order to be saved instead of the fact that His judgment has fallen here or there. Now, it doesn't mean they shouldn't look and see, and this should waken them to the grace of God. But they should realize that it's God's grace that saves. All right, let's go on with this. Uh, down in verse uh, 11, Let the sighing of the prisoner come before thee according to the, the greatness of thy power. Preserve thou those that are appointed to die. Let the sighing of the wicked... Let the sighing of the prisoner, rather, come before thee. According to the greatness of thy power, preserve thou those that are appointed to die. Then it says, And render unto our neighbors sevenfold into their bosom their reproach, wherewith they have reproached thee, O Lord. Give them a sevenfold payback of what they've done. So we, thy people, and sheep of thy pasture, will give thee thanks forever. God's people will always recognize him as their great shepherd. We will give thee thanks forever. We will show forth thy praise to all generations. That's a good psalm, isn't it? Look at the next one, Psalm 80. It's a national prayer. A national prayer. And God is addressed as shepherd of Israel. It says, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, thou that leadest Joseph like a flock, thou that dwellest between the cherubim, shine forth. God is addressed in verse 1 in, in several statements. First of all, he's seen as O shepherd of Israel. Jacob was the first one to think of God as a shepherd. Jacob, let me read Psalm, um, not Psalm, but Genesis 49, and verse 24 says this. 49, verse 24 says, But his bow abode in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From thence is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. The true shepherd in the stone of Israel will come, and it was the Messiah that was promised. And Jacob is the first one that spoke of God in these terms. The psalmist said in Psalm 23, verse 1, The Lord is my shepherd. We've had many uh, passages in the, this psalm so far that shows God's people are like a flock of sheep. In fact, the one we just read, the last verse in the 79th psalm, So we thy people, the sheep of thy pasture, will give thee thanks forever. And now in Psalm 80, verse 1, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel. That's the way he's addressed. Thou that leadest Joseph like a flock. He did lead, lead Joseph like a flock. By the way, the Lord does not drive his people, he leads them. There's a lot of people that are driven. They're driven in various churches, by various programs, by various uh, dictators, so to speak. The preacher's to be a preacher. The preacher's to preach the word. And God is to lead you and guide you in the, in the things of God. And he's not to be a dictator. We, we've gotten a few of those in these last years that dictate exactly. It doesn't mean you can't preach with conviction. It doesn't mean you can't preach against sin. It doesn't mean you cannot tell what God's Word says about anything and everything. But it does mean that I'm not to tell you every move you're to make and what you're to do, how you're to dress, how you're to comb your hair, whether you put rouge on or lipstick or not. 
of course, the modesty is the key to all of it. But the thing about it is, there's no one that's to stand up here and give you all the rules and regulations and dictate your life. We're to preach the Word, and that Word is to apply to your lives, and you're to make your own decision as to how it applies to your life. And by the Holy Spirit's leadership, you will decide whether you're doing right thing or wrong thing. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, thou that leadest Joseph like a flock. Look, thou that dwellest between the cherubims shine forth. Notice it speaks of God as dwelling between the cherubims. This is where God and man could meet. The cherubims. Remember in the Old Testament, the tabernacle, and inside the second veil, the Holy of Holies, there was the Ark of the Covenant and covered uh, with a mercy seat of one beaten gold with the golden cherubims overshadowing the mercy seat and God's Shekinah glory dwelleth between the cherubims and God's presence was in there and when the high priest came in once a year with the blood of atonement from the brazen altar and applied it there God would meet with him and he met for the people and he represented the people and he came out and he blessed the people and he said it's okay atonement's been made everything's alright God has accepted the blood I've been in the presence of God behind the veils and God says it's alright Christ is that mercy seat for us it says he became our mercy seat and he's made it all right with God for you and I thou that dwellest between the cherubims shine forth look at verse uh, 2 before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh stir up thy strength and come and save us now Benjamin was God's was uh, Jacob's son of his right hand Christ is God's son of his right hand Benjamin Remember, was the last one of the, the children that was born to Jacob. Benjamin, he says, this is going to be the son of my right hand. Remember when old Jacob was complaining about, uh, after going down for corn in Egypt, he says, Simeon, uh, Joseph is not. They thought He thought Joseph was killed already. The coat of many colors brought back with blood. And then... We find that, that uh, he said Joseph is not, and he said Simeon is not. He was being held captive down in Egypt by Joseph, by the way, to bring all of them down there. And he says, and you will take Benjamin away also. He says, all these things are against me. Remember old Jacob? He said, all this is against me. And he didn't know that all these things were for him instead of against him. Because God was using these things to bring Jacob and all of his family down, and he was using Joseph, the one that had gone to prepare the way, Joseph, a perfect picture of Christ, the Savior of the world, is what his name means. And Joseph was down there to provide for them during all the famine and save the whole family and the whole people down in Egypt because of his wisdom and because of his position. And so we find that here uh, it says, Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh stir up thy strength, and come and save us. Now listen. Ephraim and Manasseh. Je- now see, Benjamin was Jacob's favorite son. And Benjamin and uh, Manasseh were uh, Jacob's adopted grandsons. Remember, they were sons of Joseph. Ephraim and Manasseh. And Joseph presented them to him. And he accepted them as just in the place of uh, Joseph. And by the way, these three... 
immediately behind the ark. They marched immediately behind the ark of the covenant in their marching. They were directly behind the ark of the covenant. These three tribes would follow the ark of the covenant. The ark of the covenant representing God's presence and, and God's uh, power. And it w- went before Israel. And when they had their marching orders, Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh were r- directly behind the ark. It says in verse 3, Turn us again, O God, and we and cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. Turn us again. They were turned the first time, and they need to be turned again to God. You see, if there's any turning, it's not you and I doing the turning, it's God turning us. This business of people saying, you know, I'm going to make a resolution, and I'm going to reform, and my life's going to be thus and so, and this is the way it's going to be. Well, it's good to have determination. It's good to have a positive attitude. It's good to, uh, to want to do right, but it takes God to cause you to want to do right, and He has to do the reforming. This business of reformation, apart from God, doesn't work. <clears throat> now, it doesn't mean that God doesn't expect you to obey Him, but when He tells you, when He turns you by His power, by His Holy Spirit, and expects you to obey, that's a different story. But for the people, you've seen uh, all kinds of programs in society. We're going to turn our nation around. We're not going to do anything like that. We're going to get rid of the crime, and the crime increases. We're going to do this and that and the other. And every program out there is to work from the outside of man to try to make it better. That doesn't work. We've seen it doesn't work. The only way you can change a man is change him from the inside out, not from the outside in. See, you can take the old sow out of the pasture there or out of the pig pen on the farm and you can wash her off real good and hose her down and wax her down and fix her pretty and take her to the county fair and win all the blue ribbons and red ribbons you want to. And boy, I tell you, that's just pretty clean and neat, isn't it? Bring her back home and turn her loose. She's going to head for that water hole and mud hole just as quick as she can go. Nothing changed the nature of that creature. She was a hog when she left and that's what she was when she came back. But God's people are sheep. They don't like the mud. doesn't mean they won't step in the mud hole once in a while, but they don't like to stay in there. They don't wallow in it. You see, that's the difference. And, and, and the nature of the creature is what makes the difference. It's not the, it's not the environment. Well, people say, well, if you put people in the right environment, everything would be all right. Adam and Eve were put in the Garden of Paradise, the Garden of Eden, and the serpent came along and tempted them, and they sinned against God in the most... Uh, in the best circumstances that man ever had. So changing that doesn't change anything. It says, Turn us, look, O God, and we and cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. It's God that saves, it's God that turns. It says, O Lord God of hosts, how long wilt thou be angry against the prayer of thy people? He wanted to know how long that God would be angry with the prayer that was being made. God is re- really not angry with our prayer, but He's fed up with sin many times. It says in verse 5, Thou feedest them with the bread of tears. Sometimes the prayers uh, become very bitter, don't And uh, there are tears, bitter tears that are shed. And givest them tears to drink in great measure. Thou makest us a strife unto our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Bread and drink, tears, and a strife among our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Then it says in verse 7, Turn us again, O God of hosts. So he said that in verse 3 and in verse 7. And cause thy face to shine and we shall be saved. And that's the answer to our needs. 
if God turns us again. Notice this in verse uh, 8. Thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt. Thou, Thou hast cast out the heathen and planted it. They were brought out of Egypt. Israel is the vine that was brought out of Egypt and planted in a good land. They are the vine that God brought out of Egypt and they and cast out the heathen nations in the land of Canaan and planted them in the land and gave them an inheritance, gave them their possessions. Thou preparedest room before it and didst cause it to take deep root and it filled the land. And the nation of Israel came into Canaan's land and filled the land. <clears throat> it says the hills were covered with the shadow of it and the boughs thereof were like the goodly cedars. It's all a picture of the nation of Israel in the land of Canaan after God brought them out and planted them in that land. She sent out her boughs into the sea and her branches into the river. She became a great blessing. She became prosperous and fruitful. Verse 12, it says, Why hast thou then broken down her hedges so that all they which pass by the way do pluck her? The question is this, why has God permitted this to happen to the people that he planted in the land? Why are her hedges broken down so that they that pass by the way pluck her? Why is she brought into a place where she's not enjoying the blessings anymore and the fruitfulness anymore? Well, because, you know, God planted her and she didn't produce the right kind of fruit in her life and the nation of Israel, as a result, had to suffer the consequences. It says, The boar out of the wood doth waste it, and the wild beast of the field doth devour it. By the way, if you want a companion scripture, you read Isaiah chapter 5, and it says that, the, that God planted this vineyard in a very fruitful hill, and He built a tower, and He watered it, and He built a hedge around about it, and He did all this thing, and He looked for fruit for grapes, and brought forth wild grapes. And He says, This represents Israel and Judah. In Isaiah 5, you read it, the story of the vine. It says, Return, we beseech thee, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and behold and visit this vine. Do something about it. We're in a terrible situation. Visit this vine. <clears throat> and the vineyard which thy right hand hath planted, and the branch that thou madest strong for thyself. Visit this vineyard that you've planted. They're calling God back to do something about the vineyard that he has planted Sin and rebellion had brought divine rebuke to these people. And sin and rebellion will bring God's divine rebuke to you and I when we sin against God. In verse 16, It is burned with fire, it is cut down, they perish at the rebuke of thy countenance. Now verse 17, Let thy hand be upon the man of thy right hand, upon the son of man whom thou madest strong for thyself. Blessings are sought because God's of God's right-hand man. You know, Jesus is the real right-hand man of God. It says, Let thy hand be upon the man of thy right hand, upon the Son of Man whom thou madest strong for thyself. And so God considers man. Hebrews 2 says, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Thou makest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor. Thou didst set him over the works of thine hand. Thou didst put all things under his feet in subjection under him. And then it says, But now we see Thou hast not put all things under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. So it's speaking of God giving man dominion over all things. And then it says, He is made above all things, yet we see not above all things, but we see Jesus, because Jesus is above all men. 
He's the man of his right hand. Let thy hand be upon the man of thy right hand, upon the son of man whom thou madest strong for thyself. Look in verse 18. So will not we go back from thee. We promise to, to stay faithful. Quicken us, and we will call upon thy name. You know, this wouldn't be a bit bad, bad prayer for any of us, would it? So will we not go back from thee. Rededication. They said, we want to live for you. Quicken us, and we will call upon thy name. Give us life. Give us a new uh, spring of life. Quicken. And it says in verse 19, look at this one. It says, turn us again, O Lord, God of hope. This is the same plea made again. And it's made to a more glorious God, O Lord, God of hope. Look at verse 3 and verse uh, 7 and verse 19. Look at verse 3. Turn us again, O God, and cause our face to shine, and we shall be saved. Verse 7. Turn us again, O God of hosts. Now then, in verse 19. Turn us again, O Lord God of hosts. There seems to be more honor each time given to the name of God. Cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. We need to pray a prayer of repentance and that God